Welcome to another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Tian Dayton. Uh, she is uh, the developer of the model Relational Trauma Repair Sociometrics. And for those who've not heard of that, we'll, you'll certainly get into what, what all that means. You, Tian, you are an um, prolific author. When I was doing my research and going into Amazon, your books go all the way back to 1991. You publish a book pretty much every year, every year, right up until 2023, uh, in the realm of, of trauma and psychodrama and recovery from addiction, all of the topics that you know have been very popular on this show. Um, so it, it feels like a great honor to to have um, to have you on the show. And of course, you're also a trainer in in psychodrama and sociometrics, which again we'll, we'll get into. So a, a very warm welcome, Tian. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And for all those members of our audience who've not heard of you or your work, um, would you uh, yeah, very kindly give us a bit of your backstory and how you became interested in, in these topics that I, I just outlined? Sure. I, I, um, I grew up with an alcoholic father, and we were sort of a typical... You know, as I look back on it, it shifts as I, every decade I see it differently. But right now I realize we were a very happy family, actually. And we like being a family. And dad's, how dad's alcoholism began will forever be a subject of exploration. You know, was it his relationship with my mother? Was it the child they lost? Was it his own history of coming here? at 17 years old from Greece with very little and working hard all his life or much of his life. And, or, or was their family, you know, all of it, it's a legacy. His, you know, I won't go into his legacy, but uh, the damage that alcoholism did in our family was Constant. It was, it is laced into the relationships we have to this day. It was devastating to have dad be an alcoholic. My parents divorced. It made it all the messier and the more crazy. And I have spent my life sort of since I were, you know, pretty early trying to get my family into treatment and trying to mm. change myself. And I married a child of an alcoholic. So we discovered eventually that we could help each other, that we could pull together and get better from this thing that had no name when I started dealing with it. There weren't ACOA. We didn't have the word trauma. What's that? Ad what's, what's ACOA? Adult children of alcoholic. Yeah. That movement, codependency, none of that existed when my husband and I, or when I, they decided to... Um, enter the world of recovery from what something I didn't know I how to name. Right. But I was there. Right. And so what what age were you that you you first sort of clicked and started to realize that you had this, you know, issue from your childhood and wanted to do something about it? I was 12. We were all in the living room and my older sister said, Dad, the doctor says, if you don't go to treatment, you'll die within two years. 
It was a shocking moment. I ran upstairs. Everybody in the family followed me. My father, who I was very close to, said, look what you've done. <laughs> Therein lies the rough. That's sort of the projection and the, so ever since then, and my mother joined Al-Anon when I was in my teens and got me familiar with that. And I tried a couple of Alateen meetings back then. I became a huge fan of Al-Anon and ACA meetings later, but she was introducing that thinking to And what, and again, what's Al-Anon, Al-Anon for people? Al-Anon is for people who live with alcoholics then we only knew about alcohol now right. we know even sort of uh addiction and it would be for any spouse or child or anyone who's addiction anyone who is concerned about someone who has an addiction right and, he, and so did you um, and when that happened did your father when you were 12 did he join aa or did he do anything about it he did go to you know, in those days, you could commit people. You refused to go to treatment. My mother committed him. Men in white coat took him away. He went to a hospital, dried out. It, it was, he was on a locked ward. And that lasted for a couple of weeks or so because dad was an episodic drinker. And when he sobered up, he was very much himself and organizing all the patients for games. Um, he then went to Hazeldon for treatment, and he left early, and he stayed sober probably a week. And oh, then okay. he really got, no, he did not enter recovery. He right. died of disease when I was 23, and it was a, um, a sad and painful death. And by that time, I was handling it a lot myself, even though my older siblings were part of his life. But I was in the, I really handled a lot of it myself. And that's trauma. Yeah. That in itself is a, yeah, is a trauma. Mm. Oh, wow. And, and, but at that age, were you, and maybe you didn't have the word trauma, but, but were you sort of, how familiar were you with that this, this, this isn't right or this isn't normal or this is an issue? Like, how cognizant were you of, the, of perhaps the, toxicity or, or whatever word we want to use of the situation? You know, that's a very good question. Um, partly, you know, mm. I endured my father. So much of my attention to him was that I was just losing my father. And right. uh, I knew why I lost him. I knew well enough to pin the doctors down. They said he had cancer. And I said, is this yet an esophageal tumor? And I remember I was 21, I think, or tw no, I was 23. And I said, is this something you can get from alcohol? And they said, well, maybe. And, and I said, well, let me put it this way. Have you ever seen this in someone who drank? And they said, not the kind he had. And so I knew a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I knew, and then I, I got together with my husband shortly afterwards. And that's when I started getting my family into treatment because he was very, uh, treatment aware, you know, he was sort of one of these kind of, we can do something about it, all a professional. So I did. And it freed me. All of our, all of our things freed me, but I don't think my family at that juncture was so, um, 
so able to see what kind of a problem we had that I thought we. Right. So you had some level of, in fact, you were asking those questions of the doctors meant that you were sort of on that trail, right? And I knew we weren't right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I had lived, I'd be youngest. So I lived through my family just falling apart and my older siblings leaving, you know, as they should for marriage and for work, mm. you know, but, um, I had been on the ground for a lot of it. So I think they were able to sort of avoid it though. You, that's what I learned. I thought maybe they got away from it, but they didn't, they, they carried it right with them and played it out in their own relationship. And it took me time to learn that just as I did, just as we all did. Yeah. But that's relatively early to get into recovery. So it, what, when you were sort of early 20s, you, you first went to a 12-step meeting. Is that right? When, oh, probably when I was 16. Oh, when you were 16, even earlier. Okay. My mother uh, got me to go to Alateen. And I didn't love Alateen, but I did love the thinking of Al-Anon. My mother went to Al-Anon. So she used to tell me what she learned. And I, I loved all. I just incorporated it. She was my mother and I was 16. So I just... It became part of my thinking. I didn't even necessarily know I was thinking like an Al Anon person. Right. And so, what did, what what did that give you then? You know, what in terms of how did that help shape your thinking as a sixteen year old? It's such a good question. Um, maybe it gave me hope. Maybe it made me think if. You don't have to live in the middle of something that is utterly broken. Maybe it taught me that it, one another thing it taught me is I had better take care of myself. Right. Because no one was taking care of me. Even my mother who was home, my parents were in such a state of collapse. My father was just drinking and he moved. And my mother was um, in a state of grief and shock. And she picked it, she picked herself up within a period of time, but there were two or three years there was when I was a teenage caretaker and she didn't do anything for it. So I just learned to get a job. I learned to take care of myself and take care of her. We all, many of us learned that. And you administering to your father as well, right? Who was in Not the really. That, but, uh, I tried. But then he kind of moved and disappeared, and then we were reconnected. We stayed close, but he was, uh, I was trying to rescue him in every way I could, but it was a blessing that he died for both of us. It gave him a dignified exit, and it gave me the ability to not spend the rest of my life trying to rescue him. Right. But I'm still, this is, I'm in this field, so. I'm trying to rescue everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and then you met your husband, and he, he was also the, the, well, the well, son we, of alcoholics. When we were young, and we hadn't seen each other for several years, so we got together at my cousin's wedding and his friend's wedding. And we just, like, you know, found each other, and we just knew it, and... We've been together ever since, but we, I knew his mother. I knew his father. I was a child who spent the night at their house. Oh, wow. So I knew the people in his orbit who were, who were once beautiful and healthy and then became sick. 
And we had a lot of comfort, I think, because we didn't have to explain all this to each other. And we just were, you know, in love, you know, one of those things. Right. Right. And love. And, and, and I think, that, well, the difference you're describing is that you, from a very young age, were aware that, that these things being problems, right? Because a lot of people will go, you know, their whole lives in denial that they're in a, a family with issues, right? Well, um, my mother called it. She called it poorly. She called it in a crazy kind of way sometimes. But she did go to Alan and she did call my father an alcoholic. She did try to get him treatment. So that took the burden. I'll I tell you one thing that <laughs> an awareness I have at this stage of life is that I think you can be in a mess of a life. But if you're not trying to hide it, mm. it's our, the kids do all right. It's when you try to hide it and rewrite it and pretend it's not there. And my older siblings grew up with that. They grew up in the looking good family. I grew up in the family that was clearly a mess and wasn't, yeah. we thought we were kind of, you know, grand. <laughs> and I, I remember just thinking, I think we got it right. They don't think we are. Um, but I, um, The uh, the key is don't hide it, don't deny it, don't rewrite history. Because when you do that, the child gets screwed up. The stinking yeah. thinking, or the distorted reasoning, or the denying of feeling, or the in the the message that just don't. Better if you don't, and if you do, I certainly don't want to hear about it. Those kinds of family messages, that's where the damage happens. I think if a family calls it and, and cries and, you know, just, you know, gets rid of all this feeling, even if you do it badly, even if you are kind of a mess, you're, you're an authentic mess and you can find your way out. I had that benefit. Your mum was starting to open up and talk about the mess of her life and be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Uh, in a way she wasn't with your older sibling. Well, she wasn't because they were six and eight years older than I. Yeah. So the family hadn't evolved. My, the, we, we did talk about it. It was my older sister who said, uh, Dad, my, you'll die. But we didn't live through it. I had to live through both the collapse. And then I began to repair in mm. my own way. Not because I knew how to repair. I found a job. I found that I had friends over once. Through. You know, I had one evening a week that I had called an at home and I invite my friends in. Um, I did think I, I developed my own creativity, ingenuity, resilience, all those words now, but I see as I look back that must needs, you know, I did what I had to do and it was good for me. I could, I solved my life a little bit at a time. Yeah. But, but I think, and this, this completely resonates with me. It's not until we accept, well, in my case, it was exactly how screwed up my family were, you know, and my story about that, right? Like, and, and just had okay. any kind of story about it, right? It's like how you said, it doesn't matter how it comes out, just, I mean, if it's inaccurate and it's got, if you start to talk about it in, in whatever way you can authentically, that's, that's the beginning, isn't it? Oh, you bet. 
once you once you lift that you know iron gate right yeah and you lift it you really i think you know it was a very hard gate to lift my mother lifted the gate for me i was just behind mm. it falling apart but then when my husband and i were married and started running into those th- same things i i lifted that gate too or we lifted that gate and that was uh hard in a whole different way because why were we living these things out when um, we didn't do anything? We don't drink. We don't use drugs, you know. So, but then we had to. Then it became fascinating. What is this thing that's relational trauma? And when Bessel van der Kolk's work came out in the eighties, I was just riveted. I mean, I and then I knew how to treat it. By that time, I was using psychodrama, so I understood. I had always known psychodrama worked to treat pain, to treat grief. But then I understood why it worked to treat trauma. And I have spent my career integrating psychodrama and trauma and how to use it to heal trauma, not just to do, but to heal trauma specifically. And then I created um, floor checks that are part of sociometric. And they're very easy to learn because I've done so much at treatment centers. I've done so much program development. And I really wanted to come up with an approach that therapists who don't have the training I have uh, and don't feel like getting it can still give experiential healing to their clients, but it's easier to learn and the clients like it. And that is floor check. Brilliant. And I, I, and I definitely want to talk all about that, but I'm, I'm so intrigued by your own story here. And so, I about yeah, and, and you're, and so, so you hit your twin. You, you and your husband are starting to open up. You're, you, mm-hmm. you're both in in the different recovery groups. When did you when did you start to become familiar with well this idea of trauma and 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 pain and you know when so when was it that you started to become you know familiar with that and, and were able to go a bit deeper? I will tell you when the light went on because I'll never forget it. We were having a fight. We had we had spent five years in an ashram. We were cleaned up, healthy, meditating, um, doing yoga. We were in in great physical shape. And emotionally, it had helped heal us a lot too, those practices. And we had two little, we had one child by this time, one baby. And, you know, babies act as triggers. You know, whatever you haven't worked out. Oh, I know that. (laughs) Um, So we were having a fight and I was so... I saw him as just enraged with me and I was just enraged with him. And I remember looking at, he's a, he's an art dealer collector. And I looked at one of his beautiful paintings and I thought, I, I want to cut that painting to just show him how much is this hurting me. And then I thought, I sort of saw myself thinking that. And I said, Brant, you know, I just had this awful thought. And I think there's something wrong with us. I think we're, I think we're in, I don't think this is our fight. I think that's what dawned on me. I thought this, I, you know, here's, I, I really loved him. I didn't, it's not that we didn't have our issues, but we really got along. I was very unambivalent about being married to my husband. And I just thought we're fighting. You're talking to, somehow I knew he was talking to his mother and I was talking to my son. And that this wasn't, oh, I got it. And then I, after that, 
I read a book called I'll Quit Tomorrow by Vern Johnson. We we visited his mother. We lived in, in the Poconos at the time. We visited his mother who had this beautiful apartment on Fifth Avenue and just an idyllic world. But she was sort of wandering around it on pills and on, you know. So, and we had our baby and I was there with her a lot taking care of our daughter and he was off working. So it got so weird that at one point I just looked at him and said, I, I'm leaving. I bet I'll just take Marina and join me when you're finished with your work, but I'll, I'll go back home. And it was a snowstorm. I didn't realize it because in New York, there was no snow. And I curled up with Marina and for two days till Brant came back, I found this book on the shelf. I'll quit tomorrow. And I read it twice from cover to cover, which if you've ever taken care of a baby, you know, you're reading every hour that they're sleeping because the rest of the time I was taking care of her. And I realized that I needed the first step and that at that point, we just knew I'm powerless over alcohol, you know, Mm. but I thought I'm powerless over something alcohol did to me. I'm powerless over something else. So I just started kind of working my own step, surrendering. And that's how I started. And then once I became willing, I mean, then then everything opened up. Right. And when you say willing, willing to do what? What were you willing to do? Willing to not be um, perfect. Willing to perfect the right word. Willing to not be where I wanted to think I was. Willing to see that there was damage inside. Willing right. to see that we were living something out. Yeah. Uh, and then actually we moved to London after that. We sort of <laughs> took a hiatus and had just a wonderful two years living in London. And then I came back to New York and I thought, uh-oh, I really need to do something about this. Because right. we, uh, I, we, we should have stayed in London. But anyway, uh, so I dealt with it. My mom had, had uh, knew someone who was doing, named Sharon Wakeshider Cruz, who was writing books and doing workshops. And I went to that. I was 35 at that time. And from that point on, I discovered psychodrama. I, no, I was 31. I'm sorry. I was 35 when I, yeah, I was 31 at the time. And then, then my life just, I did, I went Al-Anon, I got a therapist, I did everything. Okay. Okay. And, and what were these, what, what did, what started happening in these workshops then? What? Well, they used psychodrama, which is how I came to know how powerfully healing it was. And I remember one scenario in, in which they just had me sculpt the family, you know, who could play your father, who could play your mother, where are they standing? And they put my father up on a, you know, little elevation. And I said, oh, no, no, my, my father was not elevated. We didn't look at him. And, and they said, oh, yeah, but he had a lot of power through his addiction. And I sort of said, okay. And then they looked at me and handed me a bataka. And I said, oh, that's, you know, that's not like, I mean, I, and then, you know what, that's what, like a bat. Right. And he'd been talking to everybody. I, I, I had been talking to everybody for 10 or 15 minutes. And it felt great to say the truth to them, right? What I couldn't say in real life, I could say through these surrogates. Yeah. yeah. And, but the, and then suddenly, and I just thought, oh, I don't have you know, enough anger to. And then they said, well, just give it a try. <laughs> I was just, wow, wow. So I, mean, I was just wildly, I loved Bataka work after that. Um, 
I didn't know I had that kind of anger inside. Well, was this like a dummy or was there some guy yes, yes. Just oh, taking a it? A pillow. Okay. Sorry, that's an important detail. Yeah, it's just about, <laughs> we'd have added to the drama. A it's bit a clinical I'm... sort of. It's part of rage work. It's called, and yeah. um, I do it sometimes. I don't as a clinician, but it it certainly felt good to me because I had so much historical stuff pent up, and I could just I could acknowledge it and not have to pretend it wasn't there. And that more than that, more than that, I had a physiological catharsis and I got rid of it in my body. I moved mm. through the frozenness that that uh, polyvagal theory talks about. I moved through the um, my body armor. You know, I just let my body go. And I remember afterwards I had sort of a dance, you know, as part of the five day it was like letting go and just putting on music. And I just remember just leaping all around it kicking my legs up, and just, you know, not wanting to talk to anybody, just wanting to move, move. And right. movement is a part of my model. It is always a part of what I do, because if you don't move your body, you don't um, access the limbic world and get it warmed up so that you can yeah. move through it. It's not just words that heal trauma. We want to think, we want to change our thoughts. We want to say, just think about a new thing or, you know, you, you've got choices or you, things that don't really, uh, they help. But you've got to have a physiological shift at some point. And it, there needs to be movement and the body needs to be involved. Call it embodied therapy. There are many. Yeah. Yeah. No, that completely aligns with my experience. And so, and so you're whacking your father, right, on the pedestal with the, but Bataka, my, was that the word? By something. Yes, it was called a Bataka. Um, I, I think I was just whacking the whole system. Right. Interesting. Disease. I think they, had, I think they said just towards the disease. There's that thinking in, in our world, you know, separate the disease from the person, which is helpful to me because I adored my father. Mm. And I was very close to him. That's why it was so heartbreaking to lose him. It, but not, but you don't lose an alcoholic once. You lose them a day at a time, and it's horrible. Right. Yeah, and and that started to open you up, and then you found that you what way more than started. I was just boom. I mean, boom. it was yeah. And and you you just you followed that through. You found therapists. You continue to do that that type of I work. I knew what to do because I had. Because I was, I think by that time, I was finishing my master's at that point. In what? And, uh, it, well, my master's was in educational psychology and my doctorate in clinical psychology. But I was sort of shifting during my master's to get more interested in the psychology part. And my, as I say, my mother knew of this five-day thing. We had, I had already dragged my family into treatment with this woman, Sharon, before I moved to England. Dragged the whole family in our house and said, come on, we need to do something. We're not what we should be. And what happened was we did, we did a form of psychodrama, but I didn't really realize it then, but it was, even that was so freeing. Right. And, um, what happened, I, I freed myself. I didn't necessarily sort everything out with my family members, but I stepped out of the, I gave myself just permission to step out of the system. 
Right. Even and, though I'm. Yeah. And then what started as you started to do this work on yourself? Then what what shifted in your life? How how did how did your life change? I developed what I would. First of all, I developed the capacity to feel my feelings. So that's a big one. That's what all therapy really is trying to do is help people tolerate or be with their inner world and their inner state that are uh, painful, anxiety-provoking. And this is both, we're talking physiological and emotional and psychological. We want to separate it. It's all one big thing. I mean, our neurological wiring is carrying physiological messages, emotional messages, and then we make sense of them on the way out, actually. Yeah. So, um, so there was that ability to now at least uh, recognize that sitting with those produced something. And then there was learning a language for them. There was learning to name them, feel them, name them, talk about them. And then there was learning to listen as somebody mm. else. That was about a decade later, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think first I was just, I couldn't believe, I, I, I couldn't believe that a therapist could sit and listen to me. I had so much to say. Boy, did I have a lot to say. And, and I did need to pay someone to listen to that because, you know, who wants to listen to all that? Yeah. And Al-Anon meetings were like a limbic bath. They were like, hey, once this thing gets rolling, right? Once you open up the, the uh, Pandora's box, I, you really need a holding environment. So yeah. I'm in New York. I was in New York City at the time, and there's Al-Anon everywhere. And funny Al-Anon meetings, wonderful Al-Anon meetings. Alan today, they're just great. So I just had access to a meeting every day if I needed one. And my children were by this time, I think, in, in school. So I, I, could, I could fit it in. And I could fit studying in. And, but recovery really took time and energy. And although, because I had these meetings at a therapist, I could bookmark everything. I could tell myself, I'm going to need to talk about that, but I had places to go to talk about it. So yeah. I didn't have to just dump it everywhere in my life. In fact, I became quite and more focused in my regular life. It freed up energy and I was able to focus where I wanted to, but I knew I had these safe places to talk. Right. And, and how did things shift with your husband at that period? Well, I think we learned to... Actually, it took him a couple of years to start doing those things. I, when I started Al-Anon and this kind of five-day program and so on, I thought he might, you know, he might be fine. <laughs> this might just be me. So I'll just go and take care of myself. And then after about two years, I said, you know, you're not fine. You're, you need this too. And so then he jumped in in the same wholehearted way. And it was rocky. I mean, it was, it's rocky to be, I think you have to make the decision when you do that. And for me, this was a, almost an impossible decision, but I've got to choose myself in this, not in a selfish, awful way, but I can't 
let myself really enter a program of healing, I don't know where I'm going to come up. Yeah. And I thought there could be a possibility I would come out, that we would come out somewhere different. Right. And that was very scary, but I remember having to sort of accommodate that idea. And then um, we, we slowly, and I emphasize slowly, develop the ability to talk things out. And I would say we're still developing that, but we're mm -hmm. pretty, I think what we're pretty good at is knowing after being married for 48 years that, you know, fighting is sort of point. It's good to have a, an, an altercation if it's, if you need to say things you need to say, but there's no point in working it too hard because we're going to make up anyway. So at, at some juncture, about 15 years ago, I think we just sort of thought, you know, why don't we just skip that part and then just make up now and, you know, have a nice day. Yeah. Yeah. And when well, you talk about children being triggers as well and, and the re relationship, presumably, were you, well, were you starting to see patterns in the relationship and, and how they were triggering, you know, old pain and unresolved well, trauma? I have all kinds of stories about that. I will see if I can select a couple, but basically... You know, I had been a trained Montessori teacher in all of this also, before all of this. So that had taught me how to be a good parent. It was a remarkable training of parents. And I think I had I'm to sorry, what kind of teacher again? Montessori, Maria Oh, Montessori, Montessori yeah. And my daughter was the, mo the easiest child you could ever imagine raising. She was just heavenly. And then my son came along and he was Aldroy. And much more challenging for a woman, but so adorable and charming and fun that um, that's New York. Uh, so I had two good, solid little kids, right? And, and they were triggering. I knew that if I got triggered, it was probably me and that the first mm -hmm. place to look was in me. So if they triggered, but it's my family was happy when I was young. So I didn't get so triggered when they were little. It's when they got older. I, I know one time when my, when about at the same time as my daughter's, um, uh, becoming a teen, not a teenager, but a, an adolescent, that's when things started to go south for me. Actually, they started earlier, but. Oh, they started much earlier, more fourth grade, third grade, second grade, as I go back. But when my daughter got to that stage, I remember we were having a, a, just an altercation and there was a look on her face. And this is the fear I carried as a mother, that I would somehow make her feel the way my mother made me feel, mm -hmm. which was rejected and, you know, not, not chosen as, you know, maybe down the line choice. And I looked at her in the middle of a fight and I thought, oh my God, I am giving her every bit of power I, I have. And I, I might just, you may never talk to me again. But I had to be honest with her. I just said, Marina, I'm just, I, I looked at her face and the look of hurt on her face. I knew that look. And I thought, I, I put that look there in what I said. I put it. And I said, Marina, I'm so, um, I'm so afraid you're going to grow up and feel about me the way I feel about my mother. And in the middle of a fight, she looked at me and she said, and while she had every reason to be mad and say, I will, I will. She said, why, why would I feel that way about you? 
I've seen the way your mother treats you and you've never treated me that way. So why would I feel that? And that was a completely shape-shifting moment in my life. So I thought maybe I'm not repeating as much as I repeat it. I repeat it too much and I, I wish I could change certain things. But then the trick as they get older becomes ap- apologize. Yeah. They apologize. Yeah. And the other thing is now my children are adults and having their own children who trigger them. So then they get in touch with what I did wrong at a, Right. And they just need to say it. And yeah. they don't say it in the way that when it's getting triggered in me. They say it in a way that hurts to hear it and hurts them to, it's hard for them to say. And because they don't want to hurt me. And, but it's stuff that gets that's stuck inside. And I've just learned, I just have to live through listening to it and apologize and own it. Yeah. Children are the most forgiving people on earth. Yeah. I've got the nicest children you could wish for, but they, that doesn't mean they don't need to share with me when I go too far or when I went too far or when I hurt them and that sort of thing. So that's, that's sort of how, there's, do you want me to give you another story about how things get repeated? Yeah, no, I think this is, this is so valuable for people who are parents themselves or are figuring out their own relationship with their parents. Well, in, psych- in psychodrama, we have in sociometry, something called the social atom, kind of like a family map. And one time, Alex was changing in school. And, he would, and I was convinced he, he was not meeting people and having friends. So I would call the school. And say, is, is my son making a good transition? Is it, does he have friends? And literally said, oh, he has friends. I would say, and he was always, the answer was always, he's one of the best like, kids in the class. He's one of the most popular kids. I, he's never, and then I'd call again. Well, Mrs. Tayton or Tian, um, no, he's never alone. Actually, he's got his arms around his friends. He's high-fiving everybody, every whole way. Every, and then I'd call again, and they, they were so patient and nice. No, he, so anyway, about the third phone call, I thought, what's going on with me, right? So I had changed schools. We got to live in, in Athens for a year as a family. And I had a very in, rough- In Athens and Greece. Yes, in Athens and Greece. Very cool. And I had a rough first three months, right? And I didn't have friends. After that, it was fine. But I had never worked out the pain of those three months. And- I did a social ad of, of my life when I moved. And it, then, then I thought, okay, I'm just layering my, the trauma of my life onto Alex. He's fine. He's got friends coming out of it. He's got a ton of friends. So those are the ways. It's not like a huge thing that, that wasn't even a huge trauma. It was just a, a, a difficult adjustment. Yeah. So there are many ways we passed on pain. And if we're willing to, do you want me to give you two more examples? Go for it. Yeah, no, I'm loving it. Yeah. One, one client had a father who left her, and I knew this history, when she was six months old. She started wanting to distance her child at about this state. It's just there was a bonding issue. Not profound, just something I, you know, and uh, I reminded her about her father and, she, and the light bulb went on and then she couldn't walk past she could move past give herself she could understand herself yeah 
And then she said, I've got to call my friend. And she did call her friend because her friend, and so her, her friend had um, been had, being incredibly anxious about her three-year-old daughter. And when she told her friend, she reminded her friend that they had left, I can't remember what country it was, Iran or something, uh, when they were three. They had fled. So right. the daughter was fine. The daughter had lived in the United States for a happy life. The mother, it's called an age correspondence reaction. And this in parenting, if you understand this one thing, it will free your child from a lot of therapist appointments. Um, <laughs> so one, one person's reaction was to distance because of the trauma she didn't want to feel. The yeah. other person's was to cling and get anxious. And yeah. those are the two sides of karma, right? Yeah. Anxious, yeah. clinging, alternating between uh, rejection and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Um, and you see it, you see it play out out in much more tragic tragic circumstances where people will often die at the same say at the same age where yes. their parents had died, right? Yeah, you you've got it. And in, 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 in things like car accidents, right? Where it's yeah, yeah. It's well, suicide, you All know, compared to suicide, then you get to that age, and you know, any well, you already think, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uncanny, but it makes sense once you uncanny and un understand it. And it's from babies. I had a mother who had birth trauma, and I was just saying this on another podcast. Um, she had birth trauma, and she was left in the hospital by her mother, who went home to the other children because they knew her; they would miss her. But the baby in her mind is just a little lump and wouldn't miss her. Well, not so much. So about two weeks later, three weeks later, the hospital said, you know, come get your baby. And she did. And then the baby was embraced and loved and cared for. However, that recorded that separation in that baby at a very critical moment. When that woman grew up and had a child, she also had birth trauma and she left the child in the hospital. She didn't have to go home to her other child. She could have, you know, spent part of it, but, but she came to visit the baby once an hour a day. Which is in a baby's world. Is oh, all, yeah. All from 24. 23 hours without your mama and mother. It's, extremely traumatic. But also thinking, well, he doesn't really know me yet. He won't miss me, my other. All just repeated word for word. Yeah. With no knowledge, no understanding. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, right. So, so what you were, you were finding, to, 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 back to your story, then you're, you're going through your 30s and you're starting to notice these triggers with your children. And now you've got tools to, to work on them. Um, yeah. So then you become, your family becomes a sort of uh, grist for the mill of healing, spiritually healing, because there's nothing more motivating than to try to get better for the sake of your children or uh, to try to get better for the sake of your marriage, you know? And it, I think one of the hard things with a marriage, it's one thing to try to get better for your children. Many of us can move our ego aside for that. Not everybody by any mm -hmm. means, but many. Um, but for your spouse, that's a pretty, uh, naked feeling. Mm. And I think that, uh, the, the level of vulnerability that, especially for people who learn to mistrust because ACOAs learn, we learn how to mistrust while acting like we trust. We learn how to trust while like 
really mistrusting. We, we get it all confused. So it's not only do you have to go a layer down, you have to untwist the wiring from all these developmental stages. And that can feel like you are, uh, you know, your insides are being, uh, your, your intestines are being pulled out through your ears, you know. But uh, if you can get there, and if you can take that leap of faith, and if you can say, I, I'm going to trust enough, I'm going to take a risk and trust enough, I don't have to trust perfectly, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to stop projecting everything onto you and take a look at myself and see if there's my overreaction has an historical component, which it generally does. If you're in an overreaction that's outsized for what's going on in the present, look for your history. In program, they say, if it's hysterical, it's historical. It's a great slogan. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And in in my... uh... In my experience, that that trust is is a trust that I'll be okay experiencing my own pain. Well, you just put your finger at it better than I did, actually, because that's the real trust. Will I be okay if I feel my own pain? And that's where the need to project and make it about somebody outside itself. And your spouse is just standing there, you know, they're kind of mm. sitting. But you're 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 absolutely right. It's not the other person. It's trusting yourself that you can come out of reach fullness feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it's uh and the trust is, you know, and that that in my experience, that reticence is not misplaced, right? It it, it when when I have felt my own pain, it's it's disruptive. It's of course it, you know, it feels I mean, when they've looked at these measurements of the brain and the same pain centers, like the same sense of the brain light up, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, we have this uncomfortable experience and the the rewards on the other side are yeah transformative and as you You, say right transformative you feel so much lighter and you can give yourself permission to get out of things that that hurt and to get into things that feel good you know otherwise what you know acua families train us to stay in for the you know, the death mill. I mean, they're just, they train us to keep trying and trying and trying. And to, you know, there is something in between trying and sacrificing yourself and moving to the other side of the world and not talking to no one. You mm. can, some of the research on ACOA by Sybil and um, Stephen Wolin, they talk about ACOAs who thrive, relocate themselves at what they call the ma- magical 200 mile radius. Mm. So they are close to their families. They can stay connected, but they don't, they're not in the everyday stuff. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, You've yeah, got to become close. adaptive. Yeah. And it's hard to do because your families don't support it. Yeah. They're, they're, it's interesting because I was probably about 200 miles in my early, early healing I was about 200 miles apart. I mean, and my parents weren't alcoholics, but my father was a rageaholic and my mother was emotionally avoidant. So I, I mean, I completely resonate with people who had alcoholic parents. Um, sorry? Similar dynamic. Yeah. I mean, it's all the questions as if your father supported the family, then he, I don't know if he did, but that gives him an extra power. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, it was... Uh, what I resonate with is the distance, 
the distance I felt from my father and the destructive patterns, right? He, he didn't get drunk, but when he raged, it was you know, similarly disruptive to somebody being in, you know, an alcoholic state. And then well, there's, a, there's that this distance. It's very hard to be close to be someone who's constantly, not constantly raging, but very frequently raging. That's awful. Frequent rage. The bad thing. Mm. But what I would, but back to your 200 mile, what I found was over time, the more therapy I did and the more deep work I did, the easier and easier it was to be, for me to be around my parents. I now live six miles away from them and it's fine. So, but wow. I did need a quite, yeah, a number of years, 200 miles away. So, yeah. That's wonderful. What did, may I ask, what did you, how did you turn that tide? Just, just lots and lots and lots of deep work. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, see, people talk about boundaries. I think this is the reason I ask. And I, I think you're a perfect example of internal boundaries. You develop the internal uh, ability to feel all that stuff and to process all that stuff, which naturally gives you a sense of when it's too much and when you need to remove yourself, I'm guessing, and when you need to see something different or take a different action, which yeah. in effect is a boundary, but it's an authentic boundary instead of just setting a an arbitrary boundary. Yeah, and I also I also got to a certain point where I felt like continuing to avoid having them in my life was actually uh, not allowing me to grow because you know, and a friend of mine described it as stirring the pot. Right, I had to re-engage to give myself the triggers to give me more fuel for the healing. Exactly. Uh, so, so I, so it, I was kind of a whilst they were still alive, and I had. It sounds a weird way of putting it, but it was like they became, you know, a resource for my own own healing. Um, and of no, course, I, the benefit well, was I could build relationships with them. So it's not they won from it, but yeah. I think you're saying a very profound thing mm. because it, there's nobody who triggers us like the people who shaped us. And if you can manage that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it took a while. Like, I, and, so I started living close by to them and maybe I could do like 10 minutes and then I'd have like crippling it. irritable bowel for like the rest of the day. But I, in a weird way, I kind of welcomed it. I was like, okay, right, let's work on yes. this and then I can heal it. And then it got to be, I could do like 10 minutes with no irritable bowel and then it would be like 20 minutes and then it would be half an hour. And then, and now I can spend the whole day with, so it, it, yeah. That's I been... had a moment like that with my mother because what you're saying is, I mean, I feel like you should just edit out what you're saying and make it go viral. It's so valuable. It, but my mother, we, uh, we went to this sort of thing that da her daughters, my, my brother didn't come because it was a kind of a girl's spa sort of maybe We'd always land in the same hotel mm. and do spa stuff. And so we did that for a few years in a row. And I remember one time my mother... My mother, who never made me one meal in the entire time we were by ourselves in the house, no lunch money, no sandwich, oh, no dinner, nothing. So we were in, uh, we had piled into uh, a bus to go somewhere on this island. And my mother came in with a box lunch that everybody had taken. It said, Tian, Tian, you forgot your lunch. And the rage that came up in me, my I wanted to really, I, I saw myself wanting to stand up and say, that is not my mother. <laughs> Don't be fooled by this, you know. I, I wanted to just shout to everybody that this imposter was using me to pretend she had been a good mother. 
And then I thought, well, that might not get me anywhere right now. Um, so I thought, what if I let myself have the mother I always wanted for five days? Just to see if I could feel it, just along the lines of what you're saying. Just to see if I could actually still take in the love of a mother, even if it's not going to last for the rest of the year because she can't do it. Even if it's a narcissistic kind of faux love, I need it. I need what I can get. So I did that. And I was really able to do it. And I didn't want to call her out. I didn't want to run around, you know, passing notes to everybody at the spa that she wasn't really like this and all like insult her in front of people. I didn't want to do, I didn't need to do that. And in the last five years of her life, we became really good friends. Very, I mean, I just loved being with her and she just loved being with me. And I think those five days, just the willingness, just what you said you were doing, I moved back only that's how I moved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. I think there's, it's worth considering for people who have found a kind of equilibrium where they've created, you know, a big distance between them and their family. You know, when when they when it feels right and when they feel like they've got the support to consider, yeah. Increasing it, the, the dosage, the exposure and dosage. Yeah, the, the benefit it might give you. Yeah, because it what what you said, that was the next level of your growth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then the boundaries is right. And one of the reasons, I think there are two reasons why I'm able now to spend much more time with my parents. One is I've just done a lot more of the deep work and there's just less pain in my system to get triggered. But equally, I've, on a practical level, I've, I've just got become much more skilled at managing my boundaries. When to not engage in certain p- p- conversations. And what's wonderful about that is it takes a bit of effort to begin with until the people around you learn the boundaries. And then you have to enforce them less and less because it's like a Pavlovian resource. They know just not to go into certain territories. They, they've so you know, unwittingly yeah. sort of trained themselves around your new boundaries. We'll think profound thing after another, one after another. That's exactly how it happened. Mm. People you didn't think would ever retrain are kind of glad to be retrained. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. They may at some level be glad. Of, you know, they might not consciously be glad of it, but... Uh, yeah, that's been my experience. Good for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but back to, to back to your work then. So when when did you start? So obviously you're doing a lot of this work yourself. When did you start to develop your own kind of approaches and, and models it, 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 yeah, in the domain that we've been talking about? There was, a, there was an exact moment. I, I had psychodrama training groups for years, right? I trained clinicians how to do psychodrama. How to do some minor sociometric uh, exercises like spectrogram and, and locogram. And sociometrics, and, again, just, just for yeah, people who are, right. just, I know you've touched on it. Sociometry group psychotherapy is developed by J.L. Moreno and later by Zirka Moreno. Uh, turn of the century Vienna but from Jacob and from 1930-something on, five, I think, with Zirka. And then JL died in 73 and Zerka died fairly recently. So I never met JL, but I trained for many years with Zerka, his wife. So I, I'm a trainer of this method and I had training group. And the budgets in the 80s were cut so that my trainees, some of them, 
were given 30 and 35 people in a group. And they said, here, you just, you know, it's managed here, go and heal them. Give them a healing experience. And we were all just, he wanted to quit. He was so desperately distressed that he couldn't possibly do that. And I, I thought, you know, the whole group was just sort of going, oh, what a, what a tough situation. But I thought, you know, if anybody should be able to solve this, it should be someone who understands sociometry. Because Moreno's quote is, in a group, each person becomes the therapeutic agent of the other. So it became my task in my mind, how do I create an approach that allows each person to become a therapeutic agent for the other over and over and over again in a group context, but that doesn't require a, a lot, a lot, a lot to learn how to do. And that isn't too high stress or activating for the client so that they, so that things get too involved and hard to manage for the clinician and for the group member to triggering all the way around. I came back the next, uh, we had to, well, they, we used to do things called feeling checks in the addictions field. And they were all sort of a pet peeve of mine. You'd go around the group and, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm dead. I'm scared. I'm, and I just thought this, I felt like I was in Mickey Mouse club. <laughs> you know, they used to do things like that. And also I know nobody was genuine. I mean, maybe 50% of people were genuine and 50%, you know, were just trying to come up with a word. Well, so, interestingly, just, just to point out that that for me was a massive breakthrough because I started going to <laughs> Codependence Anonymous. So yeah. You love I remember having these, these bingo charts. It was like, pick something that you feel. And I started off in 12th. All I could ever say when we did those rounds was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, and I couldn't understand how I could say anything other than fine. Right. And it was like, <laughs> Why all these people got all these feelings? Like, what's going on, you know? And then people started giving me these cards and I'd be like, oh, okay. right. And I'd just like pick one. But that, you, and you talk about emotional literacy in, in the book that I've not read some of, Trauma and Addiction. And, and I was, that was a massive gift for me just to be able to say like, I am anxious or I am sad or I am frustrated because I hadn't put those sentences together before. Um. So interesting, you you had that reflection on them because for me, it really, in some ways, marked the start of my serious inner work. So I have a question to ask you. Yeah. First of all, they were on cards. That's not what I was. Uh, that's okay. not where my pet peeve is. Secondly, were you able to choose the card? Well, no. You had this big acetate A4 sheet with maybe like forty feeling statements on. Yes. And then you picked one of them. That yeah. was that word. That's that's what I've created experientially. So we are oh, okay. running exactly That's the whole point of floor check. For mm. example, I came in the next uh, week with feelings on cards, right? And I put them all over the floor so that that would engage people. They'd get up and move. They'd get out of their chairs. They'd connect with each other. And said, okay, well, walk over to a feeling you're experiencing right now. So I'm extending what was a breakthrough for you and it's just adding the body. But, I, I, but the way you did it was just the sitting in the chair version of what I do experientially. Okay. What I don't like is when there's no choice, when there's no, when there's go around one by one by one and just, you know, and I, mean, I guess there was choice, but it didn't feel like it. It didn't feel like it. Right. Anyway, enough of my pet peeves. <laughs> I'm just telling you how I, why I did this. So I thought, what would happen if I put them on the floor and let people choose and walk over to them? 
and share a sentence accompanying the feeling. And everything, that group is burned into my mind. It was in the 80s, but it, was, it became magic. And I had no idea it would become so magic because um, the, the group was so beautiful and brilliant. And they would, they would turn, then I tried to walk over to feeling you don't like feeling. Ah, great. By then yeah. I, I understood trauma enough to know I was doing a sort of soft. I understood trauma a lot before I read all the literature because I experienced enough of it. But I knew feelings we avoid aren't good, you know? So then people start to talk about what they avoid and, and then walk over to a feeling that you don't like when you see it, experience it with someone else. Well, that's relational, right? I can't mm. stand when I'm around somebody who's anxious. Walk over to feeling that your family of origin couldn't feel. My family just couldn't feel angry. Or my family, or walk over to a family, a word that your family of origin used to get stuck in that describes an area that gets stuck. So that's a feeling floor check. I now have about hundreds of floor checks. Okay. Anger, because you can deal with manifestations. In other words, anger. I put manifestations all over the floor. Some people just think, Anger is anger, right? But it's cynicism, negativity, stonewalling. It, so that it's a way of teaching and healing simultaneously. And it's mm. very easy to learn to do for the clinician. And it's fun for the client because if it's a big group, back to the beginning, they can talk to each other. So people who chose manipulation for anger can talk to each other, right? Yeah, yeah. So then it becomes an, even a deeper healing and that reticence that we all have, well, most people have opening up. If somebody has no reticence, that's a, that's a little diagnostic too, you know. There's a natural reticence that we have. And, but if you put people in smaller constellations or clusters, the reticence goes away. And then they form bonds, which strengthen the whole community because the individual bonds strengthen the, the group bond. So mm. it, it, plus it does. I use the subjects that are being taught in treatment, like trauma. I will put trauma symptoms on the floor because I used to teach trauma symptoms. And I'd look around and people were just literally going like this. <laughs> Some would be like that and think they had every symptom. Some would be just tuned out. I mean, it wasn't a good way to teach them. I tried putting them on the floor and adding movement and choice so that they don't feel and one of the questions could be, you know, which one are you feeling? Which one do you not feel? Which one don't you identify with? So right. you know you have permission. Um, you know, I, I really, hypervigilance, I really identify with, but distorted thinking, not so much. Like, you know, that, so you start to build a kind of a resilience and an autonomy. It's very simple to execute. Very yeah. simple. But it goes a long way in groups. And I can imagine it brings a little bit of fun, right? Because you go. People laugh and they pat each other. Yeah. I've done this with a thousand people. And I, that was the biggest group I'd ever done this with. And I thought, oh, what's you know, going to happen? But it was just marvelous because there were all of the, all thousand didn't stand up, but maybe 700 did, so it's 750. So there were that many people choosing a, a word. And then they'd be clustered around each other and mm. laughing and getting tearful and patting each other on the back. And then the other beauty of it is the feelings have a beginning, middle, and an end. Mm. 
you share it and then you're done and you move into another choice. And we have a lot of trouble with that sometimes with trauma, leaky feelings. The other thing it trains you to do is listen to other people as they share theirs. Interesting. Yeah. Which is also hard to do. And you, yeah, when I, you said earlier it took you a decade, I think I'm, I'm still working on mine. Might, might take me a couple of decades. The listening part, without exploding, <laughs> imploding, wanting to hide, wanting to shout, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah, oh, that's great. I mean, that sounds extraordinary to have a thousand people in a room. Yeah. Yes, I've got videos of it on my, the, the site you'll put on your um, RTO system metric. So it, right. it's really fun. I'm so pleased about how. Now it's been 30 years, so I really know how it works. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and I can just see how that's a, that's a very easy way into this, right? Um, you, that's it. And that's what I wanted to give people, an easy, merciful, lighthearted way into this deep work so that they can understand. Because I got into it that way. I had fun learning yeah. about all this. And, and it's starting at the building block of emotional literacy, it seems to me. Exactly. And, and, and you can't, you know, I couldn't have done any of my much deeper trauma work hadn't, if I hadn't sat in those early rooms and being able to say, you know, I feel frustrated, right? That was like, I could never have got, I mean, my, my work is healing, you know, birth trauma, but I could never have got there with, without those first steps. And, you know, everybody's different. Because when I started yeah. Al-Anon, I remember thinking that I would start talking and the room would just empty, you know, that I would start mm. saying what I was really feeling and that people would just politely pick up their bag and leave. And I'd be babbling to an empty room because that was my experience. Yeah. So I didn't need anything except to be able to talk those three minutes and not clear the room for the first year right. to heal. Yeah. Everybody's different. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so that's that. So you called this uh, for, what was it, forum, the term for that moving around the room and... Floor checks. and there Floor are checks, floor checks, yeah. I yeah. Like um, yeah. And that's a key part of relational trauma repair sociometric. It's the core part. It's the core part. And, and, and what other aspects of it then have you brought into that? Right? Timelines. Um, I, I, I do social atoms, timelines. Uh, trauma timeline, resilience timeline. Again, those are videos of those on that website if people are curious. Um, social atoms for anything. Like a, I do a social atom of a frozen moment to just do a family map sort of social atom of a moment when you froze. Now that is trauma work because, yeah. you know, and I only did it out of desperation once again, you know, that People kept bringing their, the more I got known for doing trauma work, because I was just on the road a lot, the more people were coming up and wanting me to do their trauma drama. And I didn't realize that shift was happening in the way people perceived me and the way people were operating in the field. Right. So out of desperate, and I, then they'd freeze all over again. I would, I would sculpt their, their uh, family system with them and they, you know, so finally... And that hadn't been happening to me for the previous 15 years, you know? So I really didn't, or 10 years, whatever. Um, but when I, out of desperation, I said to this large room in Las Vegas, I remember, oh, do a moment when you froze. And literally, I watched like 200 people go, they kind of went, they all knew what it meant. And then they owned their own frozenness. 
And then the work began with them owning that moment and already surfacing it as something they wanted to look at, not having it blindside them as I was right. structuring their, their generics at Atlanta. Right, right. And then, and then when it comes to, so this, this, uh, what you're describing, uh, well, at least the way I, I experience this, it, it help, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help people to start to engage with their past. It's going to make people make sense of it, figure out what was going on at different stages. And then the, the sort of core healing of it, and what's the sort of, um, um, am I right that there's another layer down? And if so, what is it? I'm not sure. Because um, my sense is that people may then feel like they want to go, you know, a, a bit deeper, perhaps do the type of work you've, you've spoken oh, about with the podcast. You know, the, is, is that That's right? Is that... You know what? I'm still sort of wondering. I am more open-minded now than I've been in the past. Thinking, you know, you should, when I, when I had my practice, now I have a training practice, but mm. when I, clinical practice, right? So you can come to group with me if you get a one-to-one -one therapist, you are in 12-step program and you are going to change your eating habits and at least try to get some healthy eating. And if you smoke, you're going to try to quit. And I would just say, if you don't, you don't have to quit before you come, but just know you will let grow very fast at all. If you, and of course, if you're eating badly, it, it's not good. And you will exercise. That was the other good one. You will. Um, if I did that, people almost always got better. If they did all those things. Mm. The ones who stopped doing a couple of them were the ones who didn't get better. So this needs to become almost a new design for living. Now, the, you don't have to be in group therapy forever or therapy forever. Some need to be in program forever. Some don't. But you do need a change in lifestyle that's forever. And in program, people call it a new design for living. You have to live differently. And um, so that's number one. If you do that, you just get to, you get, you get life, you know, life on life's term. And in terms of deeper work, I love psychodrama. But there are a lot of ways to do deep work. And yeah. I don't think one is just, I think for trauma healing, psychodrama is my favorite. Um, the people heal in all kinds of ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, people have wailing walls. I remember working with this population and thinking, my population of traumatized people needs to have a wailing wall. There's a lot of wisdom in a wailing wall. You need to go somewhere and just let it out in a very unbridled kind of a way and then go back to your life. I think, I don't know if a wailing wall is exactly what you need, but you need to be able to, you know, Carlo, who is it? Carlos, um, Pablo Neruda talks about, we need to dance our clum clumsy dance and sing our sorrowful song. It's a, oh, it's just, like Pablo, so Pablo Neruda, Pablo Neruda, um, just such a beautiful way of expressing that we, we, we all have to, there's no getting Problem free. There's no getting trauma free. Where this is an incredibly vulnerable experience of life. So we need to develop the tools to process things as they come up, not once and for all, but as they come up. 
and to know when we need a little more help, to know when you need to go back to program or be a therapist for a couple months or a year or to know when you need support and know when you don't. My, my kids' generation use therapy differently. They do things as they need them much more. Right. And then, then they stop and then they go again if they need it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they have an emotional language that we just did not begin to have. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my kids are starting to learn to express feelings, like being taught by their teachers to express feelings. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Their, their first year of, of school. I mean, that's, I'm, that's I'm doing fortunate for kids now, too, because I think. Not that they need them. If you give them permission to feel, they, they tell you, you know, I mean, my grandchildren. So my, our grandson is. Ten and three quarters, as it says. And my husband was on a Zoom with them recently. And he was kind of barraging him with questions. And I thought, why are you asking him so? And, and I hear Risa say, you know, you're, you're asking a lot of questions. I mean, they just feel free to say what their experience is. Mm. I wouldn't yeah. have dared say something like that. Yeah. You know? So I think a lot of things happen just because they have an emotional language. And they don't, yeah. things don't fester. They don't build up. They get rid of it. They talk, and they have the language to talk about it. Yeah. They're, yeah, that, they're very articulate, these little ones. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true. And then, of course, the big, the big trigger for me is for when, in this scenario, I find myself shutting them down out of some perceived need in that moment, you know, and, and then, that, oh, yeah. It's, uh, that, oh, that's, that's, I think of the times I did it, but, well, yeah, that's definitely my my edge right now that, that I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. But no, I and I love your answer to that deeper work. It's and this is what's been fascinating in doing this podcast and now you know, nearly 300 episodes. Is it, yeah, there, there are dozens of ways in which people have reported on this podcast getting getting well and 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 releasing their trauma. Whether it's whether it's the plant based, whether it's the breathing, whether it's you know jumping in ice, but you know, there's so so many different different ways to heal but well, perhaps what's in common with all of them is it, in some ways it helps you connect with yourself at a different a deeper level and engage the emotional body you know i used to think i mean i still think that uh the psyche has a very similar healing pattern as skin you know when if you cut yourself you you know you're i remember i broke a bone in my foot and I asked the doctor how they would find each other. And he said, oh, there. And he explained to me and he drew it. And he said, all of these things go out and those pieces of bone find each other and they heal. And if, it'll, if, if anything, it will be stronger in that place. Yes. Yeah. In the broken place. And I think the psyche is rather like that, that if you can get out the toxicity and have ways of, of um, getting rid of, I don't know, what you would even call it, pain, angst, mm. trauma, you know, the psyche does know how to heal itself, that it's in, there's a natural state. Yeah. Just trust your intuition. Yes. I, I think your intuition is so important. Yeah. Trust your intuition and then find the faith to be with the pain when it comes up. Yeah. And, and it'll be different at different times. If you can with through meditation one time, it'll be sitting, it'll be through psychodrama, it'll be through EMDR, parts work, whatever. 
Well, this has been a, a fantastic convert conversation, Tian. Yeah, um, wonderful. Yeah. I've so enjoyed I, it. I really enjoyed it. Is there anything that we've not touched on that you would have liked to have talked about in terms of your work? Well, first of all, I think just just me. You're, um, you know, you're so emotionally literate. I think you're an example of something that is changing in the world. That your level of, you could be a psychologist, you could be a therapist, you know what I mean? Your level of personal understanding. So I think that I, is one takeaway. Do what you've done because look how much you know. And a lot of therapists don't know what you know because they haven't gone through something themselves. Yeah. So there's that. And that would be my work in, in that you would be an example of. Not, not that I worked with you, but do you know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's yeah. where you want some, somebody to get as a psychologist. And then my own, I think the RTR sociometric. I'd love people to, uh, if they're curious, just log on to that website and watch the psychodramas and see. Or I've got a lot on my website, tiandayton.com also, but it's better organized on RTRs as you met. Just see what, how it feels. See how it feels to watch them, because I think that's uh, a way of healing too. Yeah. I have some yeah. downloads on there that maybe help work through things, I think. And that's, that's what's great about this era as well. It's a lot of my, I mean, you talk about bibliotherapy, right? You, you read the right book and you'll have some response and, and feel something. But now, of course, for people who don't read, we've got all of these new opportunities. It's remarkable. I mean, I, I think you could go on the internet and I tremendous healing. Brilliant. Okay, well, we'll make sure we put the link to TRT. RS, relational trauma repair. Maybe one other thing, just can I talk about two books that might? Yes. What I have two books that are about sociometrics. One's called Sociometrics and one's Relational Trauma Repair. No, Treating Adult Children of Traumas. Sorry. But then I have a workbook, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Adult Relational Trauma that if anybody's struggling with stuff, I have tried to talk about it, describe it, and line out a lot of exercise. It's a, it's a soft entry into this kind of work that you can just do yourself. Brilliant. Okay, well, we'll make sure we put links to those books, specifically in the description as well. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, and, and to your website and the RTRS uh, website. Brilliant. Um, Okay. Well, I guess it just needed to say thank you. Thank you for being so generous and sharing your story and, and your work. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me on your excellent podcast. Brilliant. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.